All right, Jesse, last week's murderer had one of the longest rap sheets we've ever heard of. What are we talking about this week? When a teenage burglar shoots a woman in cold blood in her own house, in her own bed, he pays the ultimate price. The investigation seems open and shut until the detectives learn about some wicked secrets that lead them to a ringleader and several culprits. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about big families, problems in plain sight, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thanks again for all of your wonderful reviews this week. Also, if you're interested in supporting us and the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurder where you can learn all about the different tiers and all of the goodies that you get for supporting us. Speaking of Patreon, we are honored to welcome a bunch of new patrons. We want to shout out and give a big thanks to Laura S. and Aaron, Jamie B. and Andrea B. And finally, Jade R., Nicole L., and Kate A. Yes, and our watch party is tomorrow. We are doing the Lifetime movie version of last week's case, the McNabneys, called Lies My Mother Told Me. So it's not too late to (laughs) jump on the Patreon and join us for what is sure to be a rousing discussion of a cinematic treasure. Okay, now that all that business and fun stuff is behind us, I think we should jump right into today's case. In the wee early morning hours of November 4th, 1989 (gasps) in Daytona Beach, Florida. Your anniversary. I know. It is. And my parents, I was thinking about that. It's their ninth anniversary on this day. And my grandparents and my great-grandparents. Oh, boy, oh, boy. It's a lot of people's anniversary on November 4th. If it is also your anniversary, let us know. But in any case, these people today in Daytona Beach, Florida, were not celebrating anyone's anniversary. So it was just before 5 a.m. when Dino Paspalakis was startled awake by the sudden popping noise of fireworks. It did take him a minute to realize in horror that the sound was not fireworks, but gunfire. And even worse, they were coming from inside his house. Uh... Without a moment's hesitation and clad only in his underwear, Dino ran into the hallway and down towards his sister Lisa's room. Lisa shared the bedroom with her husband, Costa Fotopoulos. It was a big family home, so they lived there. The siblings lived there with their mother as well. 
And Lisa was very important to Dino. It's his only sibling, his best friend. And basically they were like the favorite people in the world to each other. They ran the family business together. They did everything together. So he immediately ran to see if she was okay. And as he rounded the dark corner, he heard his brother-in-law, Costa, say, Dino, call 911. Lisa's been shot. This was a home invasion nightmare come true. Worried that the shooter was still at large, Dino dove to his stomach and crawled to a bathroom that had a phone. There he dialed 911 and screamed, this is an emergency. Somebody is shooting at us. My sister's been shot. Come right away. He hung up and after not hearing any additional shots, raced back to Lisa's bedroom, screaming her name and silently praying, don't die, Lisa, don't die. When he entered the room, he saw his sister on the bed, her pillow stained bright red from the pool of blood leaking from her head. Then his attention turned to the floor where he was shocked to see a strange young man, also covered with blood, still clutching a gun. At this point, Dino felt his body fill with rage at the person that had shot his sister. But as he advanced... His 6'2 brother-in-law, Costa, who held a 9 millimeter himself, stopped Dino and said, don't worry about him. He's already dead. When the police arrived at the stately Paspalakis home that had been built by Patriarch Augustine, nicknamed Stino, years before, and now housed his widow Mary, two children, and son-in-law, Costa, Costa was hailed as a hero. There was a broken window, and it appeared that the 18-year-old boy, who was later identified as Brian Chase, had entered the house with the intention to burgle the home and shot Lisa potentially when she woke up, though no one knew for sure. Luckily, Costa had been quick on the draw and shot his wife's attempted murderer dead before the burglar could get in a second shot. Lisa was still mercifully clinging to life when she was rushed to the hospital to endure hours of brain surgery. Oh, my God. Dino felt sick to his stomach as he recounted to the police the mysterious attacks that had been targeting his sister over the last few weeks. Instances of pickup trucks trying to drive her off the road or hit her car, her hair-raising gut instinct that she was being followed, and the near-death experience of standing face-to-face with a gunman who attempted to force her into a small back office at Joyland, the boardwalk amusement center that was Dino's legacy to his children. So she had gone through all of this in just two weeks. Dino could not understand it. Lisa was kind, responsible, hardworking, and almost universally beloved. Who could possibly want her dead? Did Lisa have secrets that he didn't know about? Or did those secrets belong to someone else close to the Paspalakis family? Soon police would discover a seedy underworld of criminals, a shocking ringleader, heartbreaking betrayals, and even more murder victims caught in the same villain's dangerous game. This is one crazy ride, folks. I have a very important question, Jesse. Yes. Are they Greek? (laughs) They are. And there's even a big fat Greek wedding in this story. I actually was real down with the Greek names. I'm loving it. I could not put Paspalakis like in this story more. So you're going to hear a lot about this family who are amazing, by the way. So I, I very briefly touched on Joyland, this amusement center. And Stino had built this business from 
basically nothing. He started owning gift shops. And then he worked up to buying this amusement center that was kind of like an arcade with a snack bar and everything right on the boardwalk to the point when he passed away. It was worth multiple millions of dollars. Wow. That's so impressive. It's very, this is a very impressive family. So Lisa Paspalakis was born in 1960 in Daytona Beach, Florida, a first generation American born to entrepreneurial Greek immigrant, Augustine Stino Paspalakis and his wife, Mary. So Stino had come to the U.S. in the early 50s, and he returned to Greece in 1955 to woo and marry Mary Manasukas, the love of his life. And Mary eventually joined Stino in the States, and the couple first lived in South Carolina for a little while before they settled in Daytona Beach, which the author of the book that I'm using today, which is called Perfect Husband by Gary Provost, said that actually there's a lot of Greek families that had moved to Daytona Beach because it has a similar climate to their home country of Greece. So yes, that's where Sino built his empire that I was just talking about. He started with gift shops. He had one that he named after his baby girl, Lisa. It was called Lisa's Gift Shop. And then he branched out. And he was really proud to build this business because it was something that he knew he could hand down to his children to run, hopefully for generations to come. The business made Stino a wealthy man, and the family lived in a large Greek-columned mansion that Stino had actually built with his own hands. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I guess it sat on this river. It's in a very nice area of Daytona Beach. I saw pictures. It looks lovely. Luckily for Stino, both of his children proved to be just as hardworking and clever as he was. Lisa had a talent for numbers and accounting and ran the gift shop that bore her name as early as 16. Wow. Okay. Getting to work. Yeah. She said even one of, she was right to work. She said one of her earliest memories was actually going to her father's office and running up tallies on the calculator. So cute. And she liked it so much. She got so good at it that her dad was like, okay, you're going to be doing the accounting from now on. And it became a total passion of hers. After high school, she attended the University of South Florida in Tampa, and she graduated cum laude in 1982. She then worked for a large accounting firm in Tampa, naturally, for a year before her father convinced her to bring her talents home and help him run the family business. So cute. It's really cute. It did not actually take a lot to convince Lisa to come home and do that because she was exceptionally close to her family. She adored her big, warm, loud, fun-loving Greek family. The only thing that irked her about her parents and various aunts, uncles, and cousins was their constant meddling in her love life. Yeah. (laughs) Even though they said that they would be okay with whoever she married, they really, really wanted her to marry a nice Greek boy. Of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So Lisa at 25 was... Very cool. And she was like, look, I am more than content, like learning the ropes of running Joyland and being a boss ass bitch. I like to smoke the occasional cigarette and I like to read a novel. I don't need to get married right away. I'm 25. Y'all chill out. But despite that, she did finally agree to meet a man that her aunt Poopa and her father wanted to introduce her to. And now this was more out of familial obligation than anything else. However, when she laid eyes on tall, dark, and baby-faced Costa Fotopoulos, her interest was piqued. (laughs) 
Costa was also 25, and he was at the time enrolled in a master's program in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle. Okay. Yeah. So he's a smart cookie as well. Costa, whose full first name was Constantinos, had grown up in Pefki, a suburb of Athens, the grandson of potato farmers, though, I mean, that makes them sound like they're like low level potato farmers, but it was explained to me that they were actually like very big landowners who happened to grow potatoes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Who lived in a manor. Exactly. He was not (laughs) hurting. His father also worked at an airline, but it sounded like he was one of the higher ups there. So his family wasn't quite as wealthy as Lisa's, but they were still very well off. And Costa went to all private schools in Greece until his senior year of high school when he moved to the United States and he finished school in Chicago, where he had a lot of extended family who owned restaurants there, which was kind of another thing that they bonded about right away was like how they were being pushed together because they were both Greek. He said the first thing he said to her was, oh, so you must be this nice Greek girl I've heard so much about. And it was clear that they had both been getting it from both sides. Yeah. And they kind of hung out this first time around other people and family members and talked about their families and their histories. And they laughed about the fact that he came from this group of Greeks who lived in Chicago that all owned restaurants and diners. And that was like the thing you do if you're Greek in Chicago. And she was laughing because she's like, well, the thing you do in Daytona Beach if you're Greek is own a gift shop, which we did and do still too. So they were like, just kind of commiserating about their shared values and history and the way their parents were. So there was some immediate bond about that. And Lisa also liked the way he looked. He had these very long eyelashes that kind of gave him somewhat of like this baby face, like puppy dog eyed thing that she thought was a very good compliment to his natural confidence. And Costa was also attracted to Lisa. She's a petite brunette with these big, expressive, dark eyes. And she has a really sweet smile. I mean, not to mention the fact that she is smart as a tack. She is funny. And she has this amazing family that was completely revered in the Greek community, as well as the Boardwalk Business Association. And just they had such a great reputation in the community that it was kind of like a little bit like dating some like Daytona Beach royalty. Okay. So Lisa liked Costa right away. And then when they started seeing each other, she could see that there might be a future there. But right away, Costa was like, I got to be straightforward with you. I just got out of a relationship. I'm not exactly looking for the love of my life at this moment. And she was like, you know what? That's totally cool. I'm not really looking for anything either. I think it'd be fun for us to get to know each other and we'll see what happens. And he's like, great. That makes me feel a lot better because I have another weird thing to tell you. She's like, okay. He's like, the relationship I just got out of, well, we were living together and now we still live in the same house, but we're living in different rooms. And I hope that's not a deal breaker. So Lisa was like, look, we're just getting to know each other. That's fine. Like, I'm going to go into this relationship trusting you, obviously. And you can't like throw somebody out on the street. She had a lot of empathy. So she was like, that's fine. Let's just see where this goes. And the surprising thing was, even though they had both said that they weren't looking to get into a serious relationship, it got real serious real fast. In fact, they were engaged in two months. Stop. Yeah. That's like faster than Jesse Prey. 
Well, they have a similarity down the road. You'll see. It is it is faster because I, I think it took us at least three months to even have a verbal engagement plan. <laughs> so they were engaged in two months. Like with a ring and everything? Yeah, with a ring and everything. Wow. Yeah. And he got the permission from her dad, of course. And her family was psyched. Of super course. duper psyched. They liked him right away. They were the ones who set the whole thing up. Some of her friends were like, do you know him? Do you even know this guy? Maybe you guys should date longer. But Lisa was very, very swept away. The only dark spot during the engagement was when they were on their way to a big engagement party that Stino was throwing the couple. And Costa mentioned that he had been letting Donna, his ex, borrow his car. And so he's like, I just have to stop at this restaurant where she works and grab the keys from her. And Lisa's like, okay, but we're engaged. So like, you got to figure out like how to get this woman out of your house. Yeah. And life. And life. And when he came back out, he had lipstick all over his collar. What? Yeah. And they're going to their engagement party. So she was very understandably upset at this point. And he said, oh, no, she just gave me a big, like, hug and, like, didn't even make it to my, like, cheek. That's why it's on my collar. And, you know, she said, have a nice life and stuff. And at that point, Lisa's like, look, dude, you got to get her out of your life. We're not going to do this anymore. And he finally did, at that point, evict his ex. But the drama is not over. The Donna drama. There's always Donna drama. It continues because a few weeks after that experience, he told Lisa that Donna was pregnant. So he didn't dump Donna. Well, no, he said he had and he hadn't been seeing it at all. And she was trying to say it was his baby, but he was saying that's impossible because we haven't slept together in all this time. So Lisa is not that naive. And like I said, everybody in Daytona Beach knew her and she knew everyone, especially on the boardwalk and in this community. And so she just asked some of her friends who knew of this girl and knew the restaurant that she worked at and everything like, hey, has she been seen with anyone else? Because Costa's saying it's her new boyfriend, but does she even have a new boyfriend? Can I even trust my fiance? And... They said that they had seen her with some guy for the last few months or something. So she was like, okay, there really is a new boyfriend. Costa's telling the truth. However, I would chalk this one up to a love murder red flag because you're getting married real fast. And there's a lot of drama right off the bat. Yeah, that's all happening within two months. Yeah, so I think that he told her about the pregnancy within – so they got engaged at two months, and I think it was like around three months of being together, already engaged for a month, planning the wedding, when she found out about Donna being pregnant. And then to make things even faster, they were planning a January 1986 wedding. It was going to be huge, big, Greek opulent affair. And at that point, Costa's – rental because he was renting that house his lease was up in October and he was like well what do you want me to do like do you want me to look for a short-term rental and he kind of convinced Lisa maybe they should just get married by a justice of the peace if that's okay with her family and then he would move in to the fancy mansion that the Paspalakises owned and then they would still have their big big event on January but they'd be legally married in October and the whole family went along with it so 
from the moment they laid eyes on each other to the moment they got married was only five months. Which you I know think how I need I feel a whistle. About that. <laughs> I need a whistle for like love murder, red flag on the field. Woo. I feel like that's a real sick deal for him. Like he didn't even have to like look for his own place or pay for his own place. Uh, no. And they did end up, I think after their big January wedding, ended up moving into like a really nice three-bedroom rented home. And they were building a house that they were going to live in that was near the beach and looked lovely. So he is getting a very sweet deal. In fact, the wedding was insane. So obviously a lot of people, I think that they had it in this Hilton that was apparently gorgeous. And Stino ended up spending $50,000 on the wedding. But we're talking 1985, early 1986 money. So that's more like $135,800 in today's yeah. money. Yeah. Sounds right. Yeah. He spent like a reported four grand in 80s money just on the flowers. So this was quite the event. Casa's getting a great great deal in this. And he knew it because I guess at their wedding, while they were slow dancing, he whispered to Lisa, you know, the reason I married you was only 60% because of you. And she's like, what? Okay. So what's the other 40%? And he goes, your family. I just love your family. And so she thought that was really sweet because she's also very close to her family. Only later on would she think, Maybe he didn't mean it in the sweet way. Maybe he meant it in the bankrolling my life way. Oh, no. He should have said your family's money. Yeah. Stino gave him a Rolex as a wedding present. It was crazy. But, I mean, he really did seem like the perfect husband after that. He got along with her brother, Dino. Like I said, they're so super duper close, those two. He would play gin rummy with Stino. They had this like special game they played together like five days a week. And he even charmed Lisa's mother by exclusively speaking Greek with her and running errands at all times of the day if she needed something. Those are all things you should do. Yes. <laughs> They are things you should do when you're part of a family. But I think that not everybody does. Not everybody's, you know, that blessed to have in-laws that fit right into the family and participate with the customs and values of that family as well. And that's why he seems so great. And even her friends who had kind of been doubters at the beginning, after a while when they saw how sweet he was to her, how he was always by her side, how he's always complimenting her, they were like, damn, does he have a brother? Can you you know, get him over from Greece? What's going on yeah. here? <laughs> but of course, it wouldn't be love murder if everything was smooth sailing. So Costa graduated with his master's in 1986, but he was having a very hard time finding a job. It was months and months of looking for something in the aviation and aeronautical field. And he was just coming up flat. Like the only jobs that he could get would take him to the Midwest. And they weren't going to do that because so much of their life was centered around the family business. Yep. So he was starting to get very resentful that Lisa was considered the business brain and the breadwinner in their family because he had kind of like a macho thing going on. Yep. So after a few months of searching, Costa just gave up and he went to work for the Paspalakis family at Joyland, but he still 
was kind of bristling at working for his father-in-law. And he had a conversation with Sino at one point being like, well, is part of this mine essentially because Sino was very clear with his children that they were going to inherit Joyland 50-50. And he thought like he deserved a cut, like he somehow deserved to also be directly inheriting it, not as like a part of his wife's portion. No, absolutely not. So he was a little like frustrated that he felt like he was working for his father-in-law rather than working for a business that was going to someday become his. It already is if you're married to her. Exactly. So he had a chip on his shoulder there. And Lisa began to notice that he had a preoccupation with a couple different things that were really weird. So he really, really liked guns a lot. He loved to watch violent movies and read very violent graphic novels and comic books. And he was also obsessed with status symbols like Rolex watches and luxury cars. The Rolex watch that Sino had given him, which was a perfectly lovely Rolex, he actually had gotten Lisa to pay to upgrade for him at like an anniversary or something because he wanted the top of the line model, not just like those standard Rolex. (laughs) Not the standard $30,000 Rolex. Yeah. And then he also bought a BMW that was the light of his life. In fact, Lisa said that he was an unemotional guy, which she always found interesting because her father and brother and most of her Greek family members were very emotional. They had no problem crying. They had no problem expressing love. And Costa was always very cold and he didn't seem to get upset about things, which was the good side. Like it was probably bothersome when she wanted him to emote. But when they're like in a high pressure situation, he was so calm that it was actually a huge boon. And she said the only time she saw him get very, very angry was when they were driving to Chicago and he got into a fender bender and they said that he couldn't drive the BMW. It had to be fixed up. And he completely lost it, saying that he had wanted to drive the BMW to Chicago to show it off to his cousins. So I don't think I had ever really heard this before, but Gary Provost interviewed a criminologist who actually taught for a little while at Northeastern in Boston named Dr. Jack Levin. And he said that this need for status symbols, titles, and, you know, otherwise external indicators of success are actually hallmarks of sociopathy. I was literally going to say he's a sociopath. Yep. This need to impress other people with status symbols is typical of the sociopath. Sociopaths are masters at making an impression on other people and status symbols and conspicuous consumption are a way to do it. Which I think you can think back to all of our other episodes. Whenever we have somebody like this, they're obsessed with titles and money and what they're driving. It just makes so much sense. And that comes from our source today, The Perfect Husband by Gary Provost. I also watched a snapped killer couples episode, not to give too much away. It's season three, episode eight. So there's the status symbol thing. There's also the gun thing. He was really into having firearms on him at all time. He had a whole arsenal 
And she didn't really understand it because her father, Stino, had run a business on the boardwalk for multiple decades at that point, And he had never used a gun or felt like he needed to have a firearm to protect his business or himself. So she just kind of thought this was like a funny quirk of his. It wasn't something that bothered her or freaked her out. She just used to literally like laugh at him reading his Soldier of Fortune magazines and his survivalist magazines and all of his like guns and ammo. And she would just call him her little Rambo. Okay. So yeah, that didn't really bother her at all. The only peccadillo of Costa's that truly bothered Lisa was his propensity for just disappearing for hours after saying that he was going to leave to run a simple errand. Mm. Yeah. So it'd be a thing like he'd say, I'm going to run to the bank to deposit this money. And then four hours later, she'd be like, well, where the heck is he? And this is also a time before cell phones, so you could not easily track somebody down if they were just out in the wind somewhere. So it was starting to really bother her. So he made a habit then of telling her where he went because he said, oh, you know, I went to the bank and then I went to my friend Peter's house and I stayed there for a couple hours and then I came home. And she's like, well, can you call me and let me know? And so he started calling her from his friend's house and even putting his friend on the phone to say hi to her just to kind of prove that's where he was, which yeah, super sus. It is. Yeah. Cause you don't need to like put your friend on the phone to like prove that you're somewhere if you're being honest. Yeah. That feels very much like the lady doth protest too much. Yeah. Or the potentially cheating man doth protest too much here. So the thing that Costa wanted more than anything, though, was the biggest status symbol, his own business that was completely in his name and in his own right and not Sino's and not Lisa's. And Sino said that he would absolutely consider investing in any opportunity that Costa brought to him. He just had to have a very solid business plan. So Costa became obsessed with this empty location, which actually was a phenomenal location near the boardwalk, but it was just one of those places that for some reason, you you know what it is. It's actually kind of like the place you worked at in Boston when we met where a billion businesses have gone in there and they all fail. The turnover is just so high and there's something cursed about the space. Yeah. There's something cursed about the space because yeah. they have an amazing location. It seems like it should be perfect, but every business that goes in this, this space fails. Yep. So this was that location. And of course, Costa thought he could turn it around. He wanted to put in a 24-hour Denny's franchise. His thinking was that there's like a bunch of boozed up tourists in Daytona Beach, of course, and on the boardwalk. And it would be great and probably a ton of money to have a place where these drunkards could stumble in and get food 24 hours a day. So he brought the idea to Stino thinking that this for sure was a winner. And Stino was like, oh my gosh, that location? Oh no, that one's a loser. Nothing that goes in that location ever works. So absolutely not. And also I think you should forget the whole 24-7 idea anyway because the cost of nonstop operating is insane. You will just bleed money. It has to be insanely busy to make ends meet. Yeah. So Costa was really pissed about this. Now he's probably a sociopath. So he manages to keep his feelings in check, at least outwardly. But inwardly, he was raging about being turned down on this idea that he thought was brilliant. Did he like write it on a napkin and, and give it to him? Was that his business plan? 
Yeah, I don't know how he did. I don't know how he presented it. And he might have not even had an official business plan. He might have just showed up and said, hey, pops, give me some money for my idea. Yeah. So only five weeks after this rejection, otherwise very healthy, Augustine Stino Pospolakis was dead. What? Yes. So we're going to get into that right now. On the day of the Greek festival in Daytona in November of 1987, Sino was feeling uncharacteristically sick. So he was a pretty hardy and hale guy, so he didn't get sick often. And it was a really exciting day for the whole family because that morning, Costa actually officially became a U.S. citizen. And then that evening, the Greek festival was starting, which was obviously huge. And they did it on the boardwalk. So his whole family was very involved. They participated. They worked at the festival. Literally all of their relatives and friends and family were there. So it was a beloved event that happened annually. But he came home from the ceremony where Costa became a citizen And he said, I'm just not feeling well. So they went to the doctor. The doctor couldn't really find anything that was seemingly wrong. And he just was like, you know, you go home and rest. And so Sino did try to go to the Greek festival so he could help his family running Joyland. But he said, you know, I'm just, something is just not right. I'm going to go home and I'm going to actually take it easy. So he went home and the family continued working. And at one point... Lisa was taking a break to eat some food and a woman ran over and she said, hey, your husband's on the phone. There's an emergency and you got to come right now. And it kind of was like in the back of her head. She's like, wait, Costa's supposed to be working with us. He's supposed to be around here somewhere working the festival. Why would he be calling me? And so she ran over to the phone and when she picked it up, it was not her husband who was on the phone. She could just hear a man moaning in terrible pain. And she recognized the moans as her father's voice. So she's terrified. She gets off the phone. So scary. And she didn't want to alert her mother in case it was nothing or something she could handle on her own. She didn't want to scare her mom. So she just got her brother. And the two of them immediately went back to the family home where they found Stino lying on the floor, nearly unconscious in terrible pain. So she called an ambulance And at that point, Stino was rushed to the hospital and they said that it was like a whole scene because when she finally sent for her mother, everybody's at the Greek festival. They're all together. So she said like 35 people showed up at the hospital to see how Stino was doing and to wait for him to wake up so they could bring him flowers and gifts and things to eat. And the doctor came out and told them that Stino had not made it. He had passed away. From what? So the doctor said that they thought it was an aneurysm. They believed at that point that it was potentially an aneurysm, but he said he didn't know for sure. So he needed to do an autopsy. Unfortunately, the family, they turned down the autopsy for religious reasons. So they're Greek Orthodox then? Yeah. I mean, to their credit, there was no reason to suspect foul play at all. He was allegedly alone in the home when this happened. He had been feeling a little ill earlier in the day. Aneurysms are one of those things that just happen. So they didn't even think about it. They just said, nope, that's against our religion. Thank you so much. But I I do think that any listener and true crime fan will definitely hashtag just get the autopsy. Yeah. 
So the only thing that was bothering Lisa, other than, of course, losing her father, who was a hero to her, was that she was trying to figure out what the woman had been saying that got her, that she said, oh, your husband's on the phone, because by then, Stino was not speaking at all. And even though they both had Greek accents, it was very easy to tell the two men apart. So she went to the woman who gave her the phone call and said, that was really weird. That was my dad on the phone, not Costa. And the woman was like, no, I'm really sure that it was your husband. And he said, please, may I speak to Lisa Fotopoulos? And both this woman and Lisa knew because Stino was the big boss, he would never say that. And he would also never call his little girl Lisa Fotopoulos. That's like my dad calling me and being like, excuse me, is Jessica Whittemore there? Yeah. And she's like, I know my dad. He'd say, this is Stino. I want my daughter. Get my daughter on the line. And so she was like in the back of her head. She's like, that's really weird. And she asked Costa if he had gone home or if he had seen her father. And he's like, no, wasn't there. He said he had taken like a break or something at some point. So he hadn't been where he was supposed to the whole time. So this was shady motherfucker. A little shady. What's even more shady is that she later found a small vial of mercury in his possessions. What? Yes. Mercury. Now, apparently, you know, he's a big gun guy. A little bit of mercury makes bullets fly faster. At least that is what he told Lisa about why he had this mercury. But Dr. Keith Wilson, who is the author of Cause of Death, said that a small amount of mercury added to a person's food could, within 30 minutes, bring on symptoms such as Steno had, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, staggering, and confused thinking. Mercury poisoning can also, of course, lead to death within hours. There is also no way to detect mercury poisoning without a specific blood test or an autopsy. And that type of poisoning could certainly appear to be caused by an aneurysm. Okay, I was going to ask about that because I was like abdominal cramping. Yep. And yep, the doctor said death by mercury poisoning could certainly appear to be caused by an aneurysm. So without an autopsy, they could not prove it one way or another. I couldn't imagine carrying around a vial of something that can cause me to die within 30 minutes all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet, though, that we have a lot of substances that could, I mean, I don't know about 30 minutes. You're right. That's, that's pretty wild. I've always been terrified of mercury. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching how much fish I was eating when I was pregnant being terrified of mercury poisoning just from tuna. And so this is sketchy, but even worse is that later the family would find out that Costa had made some skeezy new friends and he later bragged to them that he was the one responsible for Stino Pospolakis's death because Stino had crossed him. Okay. And the family hears about this? They find out later, much later after a whole lot of other shit has gone down. So after her father's death, Lisa and Costa's marriage began to become rather strained. Costa had begun selling guns, and though he claimed that the operation was legal, Lisa had her doubts. The cuteness of her little Rambo was beginning to wear. What Lisa did not know was that Costa already had yet another illegal operation going. 
He was counterfeiting American dollars, and he'd even involved Lisa and Dino's cousins, a couple named Bill and Barbara Mark Antonakis, and had attracted the attention of the Secret Service's Jacksonville, Florida office. Now, because Costa was paying Barbara and Bill to pass the funny money, they were the ones who got caught, interrogated, and arrested. Okay. They were let out on bond. And when Costa was satisfied that they had not ratted him out, he gave them roughly $5,000 in American and tickets to Greece with the promise that he would smuggle money to them through his sister in Greece if they kept their traps shut and disappeared. So they jumped bond. They jumped bail, which is a no good thing to do. And they went back to Greece. And they were desperately unhappy there, even more so when Costa did not follow up on what he promised. I guess he gave them like a few hundred again through his sister at one point, and then he completely abandoned them. So they fell into poverty back in Greece. They were away from their son. And he said, if you try to come back into the United States, if you try to tell anyone about what I did, I will kill your son who's here. And they they believed him. Bill was very, very sure that Costa was an extremely dangerous man. Because Costa had actually once asked Bill to kill Mary Paspalakis for him. So he was trying, I think, one by one to eliminate this beautiful, wonderful, generous family who had brought him in and loved him like their own. So the Mark Antonakises eventually came back to the United States through Canada, but they were apprehended by the Secret Service in Syracuse, New York. And they were apprehended in the fall of 1989. And at that point, Bill and Barbara did throw Costa under the bus, naming him as the head honcho of the operation. However, by the fall of 1989, Costa had bigger criminal issues to deal with than the counterfeiting. But did it help them at all? I think it did. We're going to hear about a lot of people that were probably otherwise innocent who got pulled into Costa's schemes, and they all had to do some level of time. Because even if, you know, he's the ringleader and they're throwing him under the bus so they can get less time, they still participated. They knowingly passed the bad money. Yeah. And we'll talk about it later with some other accomplices that he has. I mean, they get roped into it, but they still did the deed. So you got to do the time. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Costa was gun running. He was operating the counterfeit cash operation. And he was also working as a pimp of teenage sex workers behind his wife's back. He's really going for low level CD criminal overlord here. And to successfully be viewed as that. He needed a base of operations, but he also wanted a legit business as well. So he found a location on the boardwalk and told Lisa that he was going to open up a pool hall called Top Shots that had a full bar. The way he sold it to her was there's families coming here. There's young people vacationing here. We've already done like the arcade type thing. We need a pool hall too. And she was not very sold on this. So Lisa was known as Miss Boardwalk. She was on several committees that were organized to protect the integrity of the boardwalk businesses and make sure only the right type of companies came in. 
And she thought this is her own husband, but a seedy pool hall was going to attract not the right clientele to their area. So she was inclined to say no, but then she got pregnant. And she was so overjoyed about the pregnancy and everything that was happening. And she was like, you know what? It's just a pool hall. I'm going to let him have this one because I just want to focus on being happy and getting ready for the baby. And it probably didn't hurt that there was going to be another income stream when they were preparing for a child. So the only down thing about this was, like I mentioned earlier, he was just so unemotional. He didn't seem that excited about the baby. But Lisa kind of figured that, you know, a lot of men were like that, especially with their first child. And when he actually met the baby, when he was holding their child, he would change his tune. Unfortunately, Lisa never got the chance to see if that was true because on June 26, 1989, the day after the grand opening of Hot Shots, Lisa miscarried. It was a really rough time for her, too, because Costa just, she went to the grand opening, and it was that night, like, it was, like, after midnight that she started feeling cramping and feeling terrible, and she called him to come home because she said, I think we're losing the baby, and he said, well, I've got to work. It's fine. If you do lose the baby, we'll just have another. (laughs) Yeah, like, no idea. No idea, no compassion, like the worst night of her life, and she's having to go through it alone. He's at Hot Shots. He's at, yeah. (laughs) You know what's funny? I kept wanting to call it Hot Shots too, but it's Top Shots. Oh my God. He even fucked up the name. I know he did. It's much worse. It should have been Hot Shots instead of Hot Shots is way better. Shots. Way better. So yeah, as bad as things felt for Lisa that night, they were only going to get worse. On two occasions that October, a pickup truck tried to hit her or run her off the road or hit her car. And once this young man actually did hit her car, but when she pulled over and tried to get out to speak with him, he raced away before they could, you know, exchange any information. So shady. It was super shady. And she was getting very... Paranoid. I mean, there needs to be a better word for rightfully paranoid. Yes. But stressed out and anxious about this. And when she talked to Costa about it, he actually was making jokes. Like he was talking about they had watched some action movie where all the bad guys drove VWs. And he's like, oh, oh, you better watch out. It's like that only pickup trucks for you. And Lisa said that actually it did lighten the mood. And so when they'd be driving, they would laugh like, uh-oh, there's a pickup truck. But she was not laughing anymore on the same day of one of those incidents, October 25th, when she got the worst call that a wife can get about her husband. Oh. It was a woman named Elena Speziali, and Elena was the wife of the general manager of Top Shots. She did not want to be making this phone call, but she had gotten close to Lisa throughout all of the opening events, and she felt like she was owed this call. And what she said was, I don't want to say too much, and I definitely don't want you to tell Costa that I'm telling you this, but you need to get a private investigator to follow him because he's up to no good. And Lisa doesn't take note for an answer. So she pushed and pushed. And she's like, Elena, you got to tell me what's going on. You're going to tell me right now. You're not getting off the phone until you tell me what he's doing. I'm not going to get a private investigator when I don't know what they should be looking for. 
And Elena said, ugh, okay. He's having an affair with one of the waitresses here. And at that point, Lisa was like, well, is it so-and-so? I guess there was one girl there that was like really pretty, really smart, really bright. And Elena was like, no, it's Deidre. She was talking about 20-year-old Deidre Hunt. 20. Yeah, she's a baby. And by all accounts, she is vulgar. She's violent. She's the wrong element. She's described as trashy. So Lisa was really taken aback by this. And she's like, okay, wow. Well, thank you. And Elena begged her not to tell Costa because she knew Costa was dangerous. After a fair bit of rage crying and cursing, she called a few family members who either worked near Top Shots or around Top Shots and had some knowledge of the place. And she asked them, like, straight up, have you seen my husband with this girl? Do you know anything about this? And everybody said no. So she's like, maybe Elena's wrong. I'm praying Elena's wrong about this. So when Costa came home later on, she confronted him. Oh, God. He flatly denied the whole affair. In fact, he very charmingly said, quote, no way. She's too fat for me. What a pig. He's disgusting. And even worse, he then turned it around on Lisa. So he said, that's a total bullshit lie. People are lying about me. So who told you this? Because I need to go talk to them. She's like, I'm not telling you who told me. And he was like, look at you. You're so disloyal. Look what you're doing to me. Not telling me who is spreading lies about your husband. Gaslighting. Yes, 100% gaslighting and manipulation 101. So they totally were at an impasse because she refused to tell him and the fight raged on to the next day. And he had always gotten exactly what he wanted from Lisa through flattery or praise or love and affection or whatever. He always managed to talk her into what he wanted. And this was the one time she had put her foot down. So he went crazy. He broke some of the furniture in their house. Now they're living back in the Paspalakis mansion at this point, because after Stino died, they moved back in to help her mother out. Of course. Yeah. So they're in her family home. He's breaking furniture, acting like a fool. And then he says, look, if you don't tell me who said I was seeing Deidre, I'm going to kill your brother. This was the very first time that she had seen this side of him. Now, other people had said that, like, he had a really weird sense of humor. He joked about killing people. But they just thought it was, like, some weird cultural difference. That's not funny ever. Like, if someone jokes about that shit, they need to be reported. So she was very taken aback. And she goes, why would you say that? And he said, the only way I can get you to do what I want is to kill the person you love most in the world. Which, again, he followed up with berating her and saying that it was her fault for loving her brother more than her husband anyway. So Lisa managed to convince Costa that she loved him the most, more than anyone else in the world. But her heart was starting to not be in this. And she was starting to see that this was not a healthy relationship. So when Costa could feel that Lisa was pulling away He agreed to drop the whole situation and he agreed to fire Deidre. Now, he said, I absolutely did not have an affair with this woman. However, I don't want there to be problems between us. So she's gone. If you want her gone, she's gone. So Lisa said, all right, well, this is a start. And 
later on, she could not find Costa. This was like a day or two after they had had this conversation. So Dino drove her over to where he knew Deidre lived and Costa's car was parked out front of Deidre's house. Stop it. Yeah. So she's like, okay, screw this. We're going to get a divorce. We're done here. I cannot believe I believed his lies. But then Costa came and he found her at Joyland and he had a silver tongue and he said, you know me, I'm not somebody that likes to deliver bad news over the phone. I'm a face-to-face person. I was at her house to fire her. That's the only Uh thing. Uh Uh-huh. And so Lisa's like, likely story. I mean, I'm done with you. I'm not going to this. They were supposed to go to this Halloween party that night together. She's like, I'm not going to the party. I got to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And he's like, no, please come to this party. He seemed like he really, really wanted her to come to this party. Please be with me. Come to this party. Look, I'll get her on the phone right now and she'll tell you the same thing. So he called Deidre. He put Deidre on the phone. She said, I don't even know why you think we're having an affair. Like, look at you. You're so classy. I'm not like that at all. I'm like, I would never assume a guy like Costa would be into me. But it's fine if, you know, I'm I don't, I'm not happy about being fired, but he did fire me earlier. And if that's what you got to do, you got to do it. I guess as a woman, I understand. So Lisa felt like, okay, well, she was pretty authentic. She seemed truthful. So I'm going to give this another go. And she agreed to go to the party. But before she agreed to go to the party, she said, look, I think we need to do some major talking about our marriage. Things are really bad. And he said, I will. Absolutely. We both had a lot going on. But next week on November 4th, they were supposed to go to Key West and they were going to go scuba diving with some friends. It was supposed to be a big vacation that they hadn't had together in a while. And it was a three hour drive each way. So he's like, we got six hours in the car there and back next week. Can we just put a pin in this until next week? And she agreed. So she went to the party. She dressed up as a really adorable little cowgirl. And he was very bizarrely dressed as some sort of tiki monster thing. He had this like oversized wooden mask and wore his graduation gown. It was very creepy. But the weirdest thing is that everywhere they went socially, usually Costa was all over her. He was by his side. He was bringing her drinks. He was just making sure she was having a good time. Costa didn't actually drink himself. So when he was at a party, he was usually catering to Lisa. And this was one event where he just was nowhere to be seen. Like she kept turning around and she didn't know where he was. And she was getting this very, very bad feeling. Her gut was screaming at her that something was extremely wrong at this party in this situation. And she almost felt scared, but she didn't know why. She just kind of chalked it up to it being Halloween and everything spooky. So she just stuck with her girls the entire night. She like went to the bathroom with her friends. She was never alone. She felt like there was safety in numbers. And eventually it was time to go and she left and everything was fine. But she was absolutely correct to listen to her gut because of course she didn't know it at the time. But a hitman hired to kill her was there at that party and he had been supposed to get her alone and stab her to death. Stab her. Stab her to death when everyone's drinking and wearing masks and he's wearing a mask as well. It was supposed to be a confusing, messy, perfect crime. However, it didn't happen. 
at least that night. The very next day, however, on November 1st, 1989, Lisa was working alone in the Joyland office because Dino, who usually worked alongside her, had gone to the bank, which he did every day to make the daily deposit, when there was a knock at the door. So she looked through the peephole and she saw the face of a young, handsome black man. And he looked very familiar, but she could not immediately place who he was. She assumed that it must be one of Costa's friends or employees. So she opened the door and immediately felt in her bones that something was wrong. The kid looked really, really nervous. He was not any older than 20 years old. And all of a sudden, she realized that he was pointing a gun at her. So the young guy shoved the gun into Lisa's stomach and tried to push her into the office. He said, you know, get in there or I'm going to shoot you. And she knew, and she's a total badass. She knew if she went into that tiny office that she was going to be killed. Because right now she's still in an area that's in like an arcade type area. Yep. And there weren't people in the vicinity right near her, but there was people in the Joyland center. So she's like, yeah, no way. That's not happening. And she's got a gun like in her stomach and she manages to like fall to the ground to get out from like under him, trying to get around him to get out of the door. And he's now screaming at her to get in the office, get in the office or I'm going to shoot you. And she's like, no, you get in the office. She's like yelling at him back, like, no way. And then when she finally managed to get back on her feet, she turned around and she went running. And she was like, I thought I was going to get a bullet in my back at any point because she later told this to the police when she, you know, reported it. And then she just ran for like three blocks until she found a patrol officer. But when they came back to the office, the guy was gone. So her family and the police believed that it was a burglary attempt gone wrong because they kept money in the office, obviously. And they let Lisa go home to chill out for a night. And of course, Costa was there being super duper sweet to her. So the next day, she went back to the police station so that she could participate in a photo lineup. And she brought both Costa and Dino with her for moral support. And also because there was still that lingering feeling that they knew who this was, like somebody was going to know who this guy was because he looked familiar at Joyland. Okay. So they're doing the photo lineup and she immediately sees the guy who attacked her and Dino immediately knows who he is. He goes, yeah, you know, this guy is named Tasia. He's like actually a really good kid. This doesn't make any sense. He very briefly worked at Joyland, but he also worked at Top Shots and is, is coincidentally the boyfriend of Deidre's best friend. Hmm. Small town. Yeah. At that point, Dino doesn't want to say anything, but he did turn to Costa and he's like, hey, look, you're looking at these pictures too. That guy like worked for you. How did you not know who he was? And Costa was like, oh, I mean, yeah, he's been around Joyland. I guess that's a guy who's like, who knows? Hmm. And so at that point, Dino is starting to get very suspicious of Costa. And this is now on November 2nd. So the day after Lisa identified Tasia, it was November 3rd. And that happened to be the first night of the Greek festival, which was, of course, a very melancholy time for the family because two years earlier at the Greek festival was when Dino passed away. So that night, Lisa ended up staying up late with Costa and his friend Peter, and they watched a movie. 
And then after they discussed the plan to leave for Key West the next day, she ended up going to bed sometime between 2 or 3 in the morning. Just before 5 a.m., an assailant named Brian Chase made his way into Lisa's room, somehow not tripping the security alarm, and he shot Lisa point blank in the head. Immediately, the bullet entered Lisa's skull. Blood began to pour out of her head. And then the would-be murderer went to fire again, but the gun jammed. He tried again. It jammed again. At that point, Costa had woken up and he pulled a 9 millimeter semi-automatic pistol out from under the bed and he shot the teenager four times. These shots were what woke up Dino, who called 911, as well as Mary, who, of course, was completely shocked and blown away by what was happening in her home that she had lived in since the, you know, 1950s and 1960s. So crazy. And now her daughter is shot, potentially dead, being rushed to the hospital, needing serious brain surgery. So this was a very traumatic and confusing event that was happening right before five in the morning. So the police obviously rushed to the scene and on first blush, it seemed pretty clear cut. There was a broken window downstairs. Uh, They could see where the burglar had entered the home. And then he had gone up the stairs and he had entered Lisa and Costa's room and for whatever reason shot Lisa. Now, At first, they're hailing Costa as a hero. He was the one who, if Lisa pulled through, was the one who saved her life. But then they're kind of thinking about it. They're looking at the scene. Costa goes to the hospital with his wife, of course. Dino says, this mother effer is the one. I don't want to say it around him because I'm scared of him. But I think he has something to do with this. And by the way, she was attacked two days ago. She's been reporting these weird feelings, people stalking her, following her pickup trucks, trying to run her off the road. I think he's behind all of it. So they take what he's saying with a grain of salt. And then looking at the scene, though, they have to agree that something is off because Brian, the supposed burglar, didn't have a bag or any way to carry out anything that he was going to be robbing. He had no valuables on him. So that would mean that he would somehow have gone through that window downstairs where they had plenty of things worth stealing and then randomly decided just to go upstairs where the whole family was sleeping, go into a bedroom and shoot the tiny, petite little woman, not the 6'2 guy that everybody on the boardwalk knew was armed to the teeth constantly. Why wouldn't he take out the greatest threat first that didn't make any sense? And then once they looked at the window, it made even less sense because the window was like part of kind of look like a French door type thing where it has like smaller panes. Okay. And which pane was broken? There was no way that this assailant, Brian Chase, could have fit through the window that was broken. And moreover, the glass was broken the wrong way. Oh my God, stop. Rookie mistake. Gosh, well, just it's like, like every idiot time. mistake. The glass had been broken from the inside of the house, not the outside. Bravo, bravo. Yep. So at this point, they're like, okay. Also, the burglar alarm didn't go off. So they believed that probably Costa, because it didn't seem likely that it was Dino or Mary, 
had disabled the alarm, let Brian in, and led him to Lisa's room. So that's the theory that they're going on now. But they need to gather more evidence before they haul in this grieving husband, just in case he didn't do it. So Dino said, you really need to go talk to Deidre Hunt. That is my piece of shit brother-in-law's girlfriend, I'm telling you. So who the heck is Deidre? Let's go back in the old love murder backstory machine to find out what the hell happened to this girl and how she ended up the way she did. Let's be honest, sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Products designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products. Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. It nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll really look forward to. Jesse, you know I was so excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also their air and the oil. Yes, and actually, I found out about Dame through you a couple years ago. We have been huge cheerleaders for this company and these products forever. So it's so exciting that we actually get to share it with you guys at Love Murder here. Yeah, Dame was at the forefront of promoting and marketing towards female pleasure. Yeah, get it, Dame. That's why we're so excited to represent this company and just to have these toys for our pleasure, for our partner's enjoyment, and for us as individuals as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. That's code LOVEMURDER to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue, gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. They're so common that most people think it's just a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us want is to get sick. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system. But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they even get to where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotic so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut, making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO, and safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. 
So if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so that you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive Probiotic. Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. Trigger warning, a lot of stuff because Deidre did not have it easy in her life. So suicidal ideation, child abuse, and rape of a minor are all on the trigger warning docket here. So Deidre was 20 years old at the time of Lisa's shooting. She had been born in 1969 in South Weymouth, Massachusetts, to an absent father and a mentally ill 22-year-old single mother named Carol, who was in no way, shape, or form able to be anything even remotely resembling a maternal figure. Carol reported instantly despising motherhood and even her own little baby girl. She said that when Deidre was only a few days old and she would not stop crying, she started slamming her down in the crib until she stopped. So Carol said that she prayed night and day to become a more nurturing, easygoing, happy mother, but it just didn't happen. She hated the baby and frequently beat her. She said to author Gary Provost, I knew in the back of my mind that I always resented Deirdre. I would say Deirdre suffered a terribly rejected childhood, and that's an understatement. The guilt Carol felt over this abusiveness led her several times to the brink of suicide. There was at least one bona fide suicide attempt. In particularly dark and desperate moments, Carol hatched bizarre plans to do away with herself, her daughter, and her son, Carl, who was born two years after Deidre. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it was not actually her mother's abuse, but her father's complete lack of interest that ruined Deidre's life, according to Deidre. She would later say, not having my father love me was the worst thing I could imagine. I became obsessed with getting my father's love. This, of course, manifested in myriad, extremely unhealthy ways. Deidre began drinking and experimenting with drugs as early as the second grade. Oh, my God. How old are you in second grade? Like eight? She's like seven. I think she was seven. Obviously, her mother was not paying any attention to her, did not care about her well-being at all. And she also began to look for older adult men to befriend to fill that void in her life. And the things that subsequently happened are clearly not Deidre's fault at all, even remotely. It just was a very bad combination of unbelievably neglectful mother, and the type of grown man who would willingly befriend a child not related to them for no reason. And that resulted in Deidre being raped twice by adult men before she even turned 13. Mm. Yeah. To make matters worse, Deidre had required braces for her legs as well as her teeth, and that had made her a target of bullying at school from her peer group. So she had a lot of insecurity about that. And it also compounded this terrible mother-daughter relationship because Carol even said she was extremely resentful that she had to spend money on Deidre for these medical braces. That's so sad. It's really sad. And Deidre even told her mother when she was 11 years old about the first rape. And Carol said, quote, I didn't report it because I couldn't deal with it. Carol didn't get prosecuted for anything? I don't know what the statute of limitations, by the time this all came to light, obviously had been many, many years. I know, but like a neighbor didn't notice or like she didn't report to anyone else. I mean, it's 
these are like a lot of cries for some sort of assistance too, you know, like telling her mom she just wants some sort of attention. We're also talking about New England in the 70s. I mean, people let their kids do whatever they wanted in the 70s. She's like just begging for someone to come help her. And in New England, like, you know, people are way more like, keep your focus on your own life and your own family. Don't get in other people's business. It's not your business to get into. So I can see very easily how this could have happened. I don't even think in the 70s there were a lot of services or protections for children like this. By anyone's account, there's a roof over her head. She's getting fed. She has braces on her teeth, for goodness sake. I mean, it was clear, though, that this child was troubled, for sure, for sure, because she was arrested at 12 years old for armed burglary. And it just got worse. When she was 14, she talked about how she just didn't know why guys did this or treated her that way. When she got the braces off, all of a sudden she was beautiful and a neighbor left his wife and kids for her, a grown man for a 14-year-old girl. Oh, my God. Also, at the same age, 14 was not a great year for Deidre. At 14, she overheard a schoolmate talking about how she had just gotten a new dad. Basically, her mom married this great guy, and it's not like other stepdads. Like, he does stuff with her, and they're fun, and she's just so happy your mom's happy. And it was Deidre's biological father. Are you serious? So it was a knife to the heart, but she knew where to find him now. So she beat that girl up. Then she set a bunch of teenage friends on her father to beat the shit out of him. And she said at that point, all of her love turned to hate. She would track him down in bars and like throw rocks at him and things like that. Like she was angry. And it was then that she dropped out of school as well. After she dropped out, her mother was like, I can't handle her. She ended up living with a few relatives for a while. People were basically hot potatoing her around because they couldn't handle her behavior. And she eventually ended up on the street. She would take calls for a drug dealer for a little while. She dabbled in sex work just to put a, a roof over her head. She just didn't care anymore. And on July 5th, 1987, Deidre and another friend shot a 29-year-old woman four times with a 25 caliber pistol. Now, the woman did not die, thankfully. They must have been poor shots. And only one of the girls did the shooting, however. So it was clear that only one of them had been the shooter. But they had blamed the other person. So we don't know for sure if it was Deidre who tried to murder this woman or the other girl. Deidre got a deal for testifying against the other girl. So she only got six months in juvenile delinquent hall, basically, I think, because she was still underage at this time. But the woman who survived could not recognize the other girl and actually recognized Deidre. So it seems pretty likely that she was probably the shooter. So upon her release, she did truly try for a little while to turn her life around. She began waitressing. She started making her own money. She enrolled in cosmetology school for a little while. But unfortunately, a string of very bad boyfriends, including a terrible situation where like she dated a guy and then Carol dated his dad and they were like the four of them like going on trips doing cocaine together and stuff. It sounded very twisted. Eventually, she ended up with this real piece of work who wanted to go down to Daytona Beach and she followed him there. 
He got her pregnant and then he beat her so badly that she miscarried. Oh my God, this poor girl. Yeah. And she also didn't think that there was anything wrong with that. Later on, she would say about that relationship, oh yeah, and you know, then we broke up. There's no hard feelings about anything. It just, whatever happened, happened. It's fine. Anyway, that's when I met JR and the guys from Top Shots. So she ended up alone and on her own in Daytona Beach. She ended up hooking up with this other kid named JR. He introduced her to Top Shots and Vinny Speciale, who hired her to be a cocktail waitress and bartender. There she became, in the words of one Daytona Beach cop, a strange type of role model for the young kids on the boardwalk. She was sleazy but alluring. What? Sleazy but alluring was a cop's description of this 20-year-old girl. Thanks, officer. She was kind of like a ringleader. There was like a whole group of low-time car thieves and sex workers that were all underage. And she became kind of like the queen of this merry band of criminal misfits that all had the same terrible type of background, which led them to be on the streets in their teen years. So she also caught the eye, of course, of the owner, Costa Fotopoulos. Whether Costa felt he had met a kindred sociopathic soul or a broken young woman that he knew he could use for his own means, we don't know. But we do know that their relationship turned sexual within only a matter of weeks and that while Lisa saw the sweet, good Greek boy side of Costa who wanted to have a business and was her adorable Rambo, Deidre saw something much closer to the truth. A pimp, a counterfeiter, a sadist, an arms smuggler, and even according to Costa himself, a murderer. Jesus. This did not deter Deidre at all. I mean, she thought it was kind of sexy and exciting, but she also thought that, you know, Costa had these beautiful designer suits. He drove a BMW. He had a fancy Rolex. He lived in a gorgeous mansion on the river. And of course, all of this was paid for by Lisa and her family. But she didn't know that. He, of course, presented it as he had done everything and Lisa was riding on his coattails. And so she thought, this guy's successful. Like, whatever criminal organization he's involved in, he's got it going on. Like, this is the richest, classiest guy I've ever dated. He's great. She also... And he did this to a couple people. He had a letter, like an envelope addressed to him from the CIA. And he put it in his office and pretended like he was part of the CIA, like a a CIA operative would frame an envelope (laughs) and show everyone that he was part of the CIA. And later on, the police actually say that he had applied to be part of the CIA and he had gotten a form rejection letter and he like tossed the letter and used just the envelope with his name on it and the CIA letterhead return address to make it look like he was in the CIA. So for his part, Costa got an overly sexual and appreciative young woman that he did not have to hide his darker side from. At the beginning, it seemed like she did not mind some of the rough stuff he liked to do in bed, but it slowly devolved into straight-up torture. Deidre would later claim that Costa beat her, he burned cigarettes onto her breasts, he threw knives at her, he put a gun to her head more than once, and he often threatened to kill her. Now, some people who knew Deidre 
claim that she was just as sick and twisted as Costa was. An ex-roommate claimed that she tried to get him to kill six kittens by putting them in a sack and asking him to shoot them because they were, quote, getting all over everything in the house and she couldn't handle it anymore. They were her kittens? He did not. I do not know whose kittens they were, but if they were strays, if they were another roommate's kittens, the man did not kill these kittens, but he said she's acting like she was innocent in all of this, but she was a statistic bitch as well. She was by everyone else's account in awe of Costa and a very equal partner in violence and crime. One crime both Costa and Deidre craved was the murder of Lisa. Now, it's unclear when exactly Costa decided that he was going to murder his bride. We don't know if this was a setup from day one. He saw that the family was worth multi-millions of dollars. Lisa also had a $700,000 life insurance policy. So was it a setup from the very beginning and he planned to one by one knock off the Paspalakis's? Or was it that when he started sleeping with Deidre, he decided that he wanted to be with her and not Lisa. And at that point, he wanted to get rid of her. It's unclear. It's probably like or likely closer to the first one because there have been reports that he had other affair partners before Deidre. She was just the most meaningful. Yeah. So what Deidre didn't know was that a desire to be with her was not the leading cause of him wanting to knock off his wife. Despite all of this criminal activity, Costa was in nearly 20 grand of debt. So his spending must have been out of control, or he just wasn't a very good criminal because he should not be negative 20 grand with all of the counterfeiting and gun running and pimping that he's doing. Yeah. Hey, dude, you even suck at being a criminal. Sorry. <laughs> he does. He does. And nobody knew that. Deidre didn't know that. Nobody who was running around with him knew that. Of course, Lisa didn't know it. During the summer and fall of 1989, Costa used Deidre to help him solicit the help of several young kids with the goal of killing his wife. So at least five of these youths took the job, or at least tried to take the job. Costa gave each one several different scenarios. He promised them between five and 10 grand. And some of his ideas, like the whole pickup truck thing, was that he did have an idea for a couple of these guys to get into a fender bender with Lisa. And then when they pulled over, ideally in a discreet area, to have them kill her in a way that it would look like a road rage incident. Another plan was to do the Halloween plot, which was he told somebody to wear a mask, get her alone at this big old party where there was areas where you could pull somebody into a corner and stab her to death as quickly as possible, and nobody would know. And that's probably why he was keeping his distance, because he wanted to make sure that he was being seen around other people and far away from his wife when the murder went down. So there was also a plan, of course, to kill her at the Joyland office. Somebody had been watching the office at that point and knew when Dino left so that they knew when she was going to be alone. Deidre also revealed later on that the plan was even more chilling because other than the road rage incident, 
if somebody broke into Joyland or his own home, especially, he planned on being there so that he could shoot the person who killed Lisa, thereby eliminating a witness and also making himself look like a hero. So, well, Costa is over these summer and fall months trying and failing to find a reliable teenage hitman, which is always a problem. Good help is so hard to find when you're trying to get somebody to kill your wife. He was also very much struggling to run his low-level scumbag criminal organization when an 18-year-old named Kevin Ramsey was fired from Top Shots for stealing and then proceeded to steal Costa's stable of teenage sex workers away in an effort to start a rival pimphood. I don't know what you'd call Revolution. it. Business. <laughs> yes. You can imagine how pissed Costa was. And he got even more pissed when he heard through the grapevine through Deidre that people were warning Kevin, like, hey, do not step on Costa's toes. He's a real badass. He's going to kill you. He's dangerous. And Kevin was very cocky. And he said, well, I know all about his counterfeit business. And if he tries to do anything to me, I'll go straight to the cops and I'll turn him in. So that's my insurance. Well, that is when Costa decided that Kevin had to die. Correctly realizing that Deidre knew too much and even maybe hoping before Lisa found out about the affair that he could get Deidre to kill Lisa, he decided that he was going to manipulate her into killing Kevin. Okay. So then he would have something on Deidre so that she could never go to the police or tell his wife about the affair because then he would turn her into the police for killing Kevin. And he gets to get rid of Kevin. So it was two birds, one stone. So now, how would he get Deidre to kill this 18-year-old boy? Well, according to The Perfect Husband by Gary Provost, Costa told Deidre that he had already killed eight people himself and that he wanted to initiate her into the Hunters and Killers Club. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Here we go. The club was a group of assassins and various operatives who did what he called political jobs. To get in, you had to murder somebody and have it videotaped. The videotape would be kept by another member as blackmail to prevent you from turning in any of the other members of the H&K club. Hey, at least he's being honest about the blackmail, you know? <laughs> upfront about one part of his life. Yeah. He said that in turn for getting videotaped, that she would receive a videotape of a murder being committed by another member. Mm -hmm. If Deidre was at all skeptical about if this was a real thing, which by the way, the authorities looked into this later, there was no shadowy hunter and killers club. It came completely from Costa's manipulative imagination. What? <laughs> She was probably persuaded when Costa showed her a video of himself torturing a man. So the authorities were later not able to find that tape, but there were several witnesses that said that they knew of its existence and some who had actually seen the footage. So naturally... He told Deidre that she had to shoot Kevin in the woods while he videotaped it so that she could be initiated into the H&K Club. 
Now, Kevin was completely unaware that Costa knew about his blackmail idea. He didn't think that he knew at all about what was going on. And he said he knew that he was trying to set up a rival prostitution ring. But Costa was like, you know, I like you. You've got gumption. You remind me of myself at that age. I think you should be initiated in the Hunters and Killers Club as well. And we can join forces. And unfortunately, naive Kevin completely bought this. And Costa told him that he had to meet Deidre at a Popeye's chicken of all places. And then they together would meet at this meeting place that was on the edge of a forest. And then they would go into the forest together. And what they were going to do was tie him to a tree and shoot bullets at his feet. And Costa said that if he could withstand the fear of having shots near his feet without crying out or freaking out, then that would be enough. He'd be initiated into the club. Wow. Now, Deidre, of course, knew that they were really luring him to his death, although the pretense behind why was also a lie to her. So, sadly, on October 20th, 1989, they all met at that place in the woods after Deidre picked him up from the Popeyes. Costa pulled a video camera, a flashlight, an AK-47 automatic rifle, and a 22 caliber pistol out of the BMW's trunk. And then the three walked further out into the woods. So later, Deidre would say, he tied Kevin to a tree. He said, Kevin, this is just a precaution so you don't move because you don't want to get hit. Kevin's hands were behind his back around the tree and Costa tied his hands together. Costa walked to the left. He took out the video camera and pointed it at me. And he said, take the 22 and shoot him. I shot Kevin three times in the chest and once in the head in the left temple at close range. Then after that, Costa shot him again with some kind of Russian gun. He had it on a semi-automatic, I guess, because it was only one shot when he pulled the trigger. He made me catch the shell. He untied Kevin and took the rope. So Kevin's body was like scrunched. He said, sorry, man. And he said, come on. So I just followed him. We went back to the car and we left. So later, Deidre is going to say that she only killed Kevin out of fear for her own life and that of her family's lives. But witnesses say that she actually bragged about it willingly. She even showed her bloody sneakers to Tasia, who was going to turn out to be the next would-be assassin. When she did show him those bloody sneakers, she said, yeah, Kevin is dead, which Tasia was pissed about because Kevin had been a friend of his. And if you don't help out Costa with a job then you're going to be next. Whoa. So it seems like the original plan was to have Deidre kill Lisa and that he would have that videotape of blackmail evidence against her to say, I'm going to go to the police unless you kill Lisa. Yep. But then October 25th was the day that she got the call from Elena. And now at that point, he realized he can't have Deidre kill his wife because it will absolutely 100% get traced back to him, of course. Yeah. So he needs another young assassin. And at that point, they kind of, it sounds like, forced Tasia into it because he was 
terrified of Costa and he had proof that Kevin had been murdered by Deidre and Costa. So why wouldn't he believe he could potentially be next? Yeah, of course. So Tasia was a really cute kid from Brooklyn who got very much pulled into this insanity. Tasia was the one who was supposed to stab Lisa to death at the Halloween party, but reportedly told Costa and Deidre that he could just never get her alone. And then he was, of course, also the one who came to the Joyland office and attempted to kill Lisa there. He later said to the police about it that he had waited for Dino to leave. And when Dino left, he had been like playing an arcade game. He said, I went and knocked on the office door and she opened the door. Now, this is a direct transcript. I said, is Costa here? And she said, no. And I said, do you know what time he's coming back? I'm supposed to talk to him about a job. And she said, no, what is it that you want? And then I noticed that she looked down and she saw the gun. And then she looked up back at me and she sort of cringed a little bit, you know, like she was scared or something. And then that's when I pulled out the gun and said, get back in the office. She dove on the ground and she said, no. I told her, get up, bitch. She got up and I said, get in the office. And she said, no, you get in the office. And I'm like, what are you crazy? You get in the office. And she said, no, you get in the office. (laughs) This is from the transcript of his statement. And then I told her something and then she ran off. She came back and she said, get in the office. And I said, no, you get in the office. And then she said, no, you get in the office. And we went through that ordeal again. And then I cocked my gun and I aimed it at her and she finally took off for good. Oh, my God. Unreal. Yeah. And I had read like how I described it to you guys the first time was how Lisa just very matter factly described it. So reading this version totally sent me. I was dying about how she just is like, no, you get in the office. No. And she's like fighting with him. This guy who has a gun pointed at her. She is so brave and fearless. So brave. I would have peed my pants. Oh my God, I put a, I would have probably walked into the office and gotten killed. <laughs> I am such a rule follower. <laughs> Are you though? I'm like, okay, does it mean you'll like me more? <laughs> yeah, so he said at that point, he put the gun back in his jacket. He walked by the cashier, just like waved at her and just kept walking casually out and he got away. Now, despite these attempts on Lisa's life, Tasia later told the police that he never planned to actually go through with it, that he was trying to make it look like he was trying, at least, so Costa wouldn't kill him. Okay. So if it appeared that he was genuinely trying to murder her and it just wasn't happening, he was hoping that Costa would eventually tell him he didn't have to do it. But there was some back and forth about this, too, because he also told... The police at one point that the gun wasn't even loaded, which turned out to be a lie. Nevertheless, the assistant state attorney for Florida at the time, David DeMore, said that he believed of all the kids involved in the plot to murder Lisa, Tasia was the one that was most likely to straighten out. He said, quote, he's the one I am the most hopeful for. There is a certain likability about Tasia. He's young enough, resourceful enough that he will have lots of opportunities He's a handsome young fellow, and I grew to like him, though not his actions. I want to call him a scoundrel. If you don't know what he got involved with, you could like him very much. He's a friendly kind of fellow. He's got an aura about him. It takes a while to get him to tell you the truth, but once you get him to tell you the truth, he's charming. 
I mean, he ended it by saying, though, that he had lied and that gun was loaded and that Lisa still did come within an inch of her life. So regardless of the fact that he was this poor kid that was pulled into this, it was still, I mean, he still walked down very, very far down that line of almost killing Lisa. Yeah. Unfortunately, this leads us to the last of the teenage assassins, 18-year-old Brian Chase, who was a likable kid from a rotten family home just outside of Daytona. He was the only one of the kids in this group that was a local. He was described as easygoing, immature, and easily manipulated, especially by girls and women. And especially, especially by good-looking Deidre, who he had a desperate crush on. So J.R. Deidre's first boyfriend in the Top Shots gang said, Brian never got laid in his life. He wanted to be like me and get laid, but he just didn't have a good style with the girls. Oh, my God. Okay, J.R. Okay, J.R. J.R., by the way, had been one of the kids first asked to kill Lisa, and he had said no. Yeah, so apparently when Tasia was like, I can't do this anymore, obviously, and also the cops are going to find me now because he had been identified, Costa was pissed. And he told Deidre, like, you better find somebody else to kill my wife or I'm going to kill you or other people you love. And so Brian came into the house where a bunch of these kids lived, including Deidre. And Deidre was crying about Tasia's failed attempt. And Brian just had such a big soft spot for Deidre that he was like, well, what's wrong? What's going on? And she's like, if somebody doesn't kill Lisa Fotopoulos, I'm going to get murdered. And he's like, well, I'll do it for you. Oh, my God. Yeah. The police asked her how she convinced Brian to kill Lisa. And she goes, I asked him. So sad. Yeah. Some other people that knew them, though, said that there was, of course, the promise of sex. Of course. But that was a promise that Deidre knew that she was not going to have to actually go through with because she knew Costa planned to kill Brian all along. So on November 4th at just before 5 in the morning, Costa turned off the burglar alarm system and let Brian in. So it's unclear exactly when this window got broken from the inside, whether it (laughs) happened earlier in the night, after, we don't know. It was just broken before the police got there. It did appear that there was some glass shards on Brian's, I think on his jeans or something. So he might've been the one who broke the window, but from inside. There was also no way he was going to fit through that window. They think that Costa got the idea because there had been attempted break-in some years earlier and somebody had broken that window. But it sounds like that person also couldn't fit through the window because it they never got inside. So this was a, a very bizarre way for Costa to recreate that crime when it was also a failed attempt. So after that, basically Costa led him up the back staircase and directly to his bedroom with Lisa in her childhood home. Lisa was completely passed out and he got into bed with Lisa And I think that was more to make sure that the blood spatter all made sense for him supposedly being asleep next to her. And then once he was in the bed laying next to Lisa, he gave the signal to Brian who shot Lisa in the head and then the gun did jam. And then what Costa told the police is true from that point on. The gun jammed. He tried again. The gun jammed again. 
and Costa grabbed the nine millimeter from under his bed and shot the teenager dead in four shots. Those four shots were what Dino heard that woke him up as well as Mary. So Brian's dead now. He's been murdered by Costa, which is a total waste of a young life. And Lisa is on her way to the hospital with a hole in her head and brain. And miraculously, she survives. Oh, my God. I cannot even believe it. It's absolutely incredible that she was shot point blank in the head with a 22 and lived. And I didn't want to give this away earlier because I wanted you guys to be on the fence about whether she survived or not. But apparently she said she remembers everything. She said it felt like she was totally asleep. And then she felt like she had a weird dream that a judge was banging a gavel against her skull. Oh, that's God. Poor woman. The imagery. Ugh. And when she came to, she was being wheeled out by the paramedics and her mother was crying and she looked over and she's like, mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's okay. Don't worry. And everyone had no idea how she was still talking and alert on her way to the hospital. It was absolutely incredible. According to Dr. Keith Wilson, it was just incredibly good luck that Lisa survived. It wasn't a miracle. It was just good luck. A 22 to the back of her head would have certainly killed her with one shot. But Brian Chase had fired the gun into the side of Lisa's head into an area that offered more of a chance for protection from the vital parts of the brain. Unbelievable. It's incredible. A larger caliber bullet like a 45 would have been devastating from any direction. It would have gone in one side of Lisa's brain and out the other, almost certainly killing her. But a 22 shot into the side of the head will expend most of its energy going through the bone so that it has very little velocity by the time it gets inside. The bullet would then settle either in the fluid that surrounds the brain, as it did with Lisa, or in the temporal lobe, which is so densely fibered that a bullet could penetrate the area without causing any permanent damage. Unbelievable. How fascinating is that? Unreal. It's so crazy. Just, it's just so great for Lisa. I wish every case could be a survivor story. After 12 hours of exploratory brain surgery, it was actually determined that it was safer for the bullet to stay inside of Lisa's head. My God. Man, this is giving so much Mary Jo But If You Go. Totally. I don't know how I'd feel about like having something that dangerous in my body at all times. Yeah, like, I think that they just monitor it very closely to make sure it doesn't start traveling. But can you also imagine every time you go through airport security, you're like, that's just the bullet in my brain. Don't worry, guys. No. Though Costa had accompanied Lisa to the hospital and played the part of a loving, concerned husband, the minute Lisa had gone into surgery, he hightailed it to Deidre's house, where he regaled her and their roommates with details of how he had murdered Brian and told them the very bad news that Lisa was still alive. So witnesses say that he and Deidre began to 
hatch different plots about how they could murder her with Deidre even saying they should send a bomb to the hospital to finally kill her. Wow. And a bunch of other innocent, sick people. Yeah. When Lisa woke up from surgery, she was alone. And she said that she already didn't trust Costa at this point. But it was like when she woke up from surgery and she looked around, she was like, oh, holy shit, it's him. Just she had this crystal clear realization that all of it, the pickup trucks and the party and the attempted burglary, or at least it was supposed to look like both of them were Costas. And she was like, shit. And luckily Dino then came in to visit her and he looked at her and he's like, you know, and she goes, you know, too, huh? And he's like, yeah, it's your husband. So at that point, they asked the police for protection and received it. Good. Well, luckily for the Paspalakases, the cops had already heard from two would-be teen assassins. So they had already talked to JR, who called them the night of the murder, and said, I can tell you exactly who's behind that, as well as a guy named Mike Cox, who had been one of the guys who was supposed to kill... Lisa at a different time. And apparently he got arrested like a night after the attempted murder for a completely unrelated prostitution charge. And while he was there, he spilled the guts on what he knew about Costa and all of the attempts to kill Lisa. So they have already got two guys. They eventually tracked down Tasia, who of course spills the beans. And everybody says, you got to go pick up Deidre. She knows more about anything than any of us do. And they did. And to everyone's complete surprise, Deidre confessed everything. Whoa. Everything. According to Gary Provost, she squealed about her attempt to recruit killers, the foiled plans to knock off Lisa, the Tasia holdup, and the murder of Kevin Ramsey. They think this is the beginning of her trying to set up a defense for herself by portraying herself as naive and innocent. She portrayed Costa as a sadist and a Svengali who had a powerful hold over her. She said that she was a victim of intimidation and torture, that, of course, she was definitely forced to kill Kevin Ramsey or she was going to be killed herself. So at 2.30 on Wednesday morning, so 2.30 in the morning, they said, okay, Deidre, if this is all true, bring us to Kevin Ramsey's body. And she did. So they drove down the I-95 and to the spot. They had flashlights. They're out in the woods at 2.30 in the morning. And the cops said that they could smell a foul odor in the air that made them realize they were in the right place. She was at least telling the truth about that. And she directed them directly to the tree. And Kevin's body was still there, but his skull was missing. The police said that his spinal cord was poking up over his collar. Jessica. Oof. They also said that later when they searched Deidre's house and room, they found a book, just one book, the only book Deidre had. And it was a novel called Frenzy by Rex Miller. And the first words in the book were, Juan 
LaBellamond came to with his hands wired behind him bound to a tree. And so they thought maybe that's where she got the idea. Maybe it was her idea, not Costas. Yeah. We don't know. So at this point, the police had a whole lot on Costa. But all of this was just witness testimony. And none of these kids were going to be considered stand-up witnesses if all they had was Deidre and all of these like teenagers who had got pulled into the plot. I mean, think about any defense attorney, how they could rip into Deidre on cross-examination. Yeah. They're like, we need some physical evidence on this guy because he is going to play the part of a business owner, well-respected by the community, has a loving wife. He would never do this in a million years. So they go to Lisa, who's very much cooperating with them and believes that Costa is guilty. And she said, you guys, there's this weird thing he's done for a really long time where he sometimes buries things in the yard, especially firearms. And only a little while ago, he was burying something near this fire pit in our backyard. So they went out there, they dug up near the fire pit, and lo and behold, they were able to recover not only the guns used to kill Kevin Ramsey, but also the videotape that showed Deidre shooting Kevin while Costa's distinctive Greek-accented voice gave her commands. Whoa. That is quite enough for an arrest. I'd say. They also found, when they dug into it, so much evidence about all of his other criminal activities. So he was actually first tried in federal court in April of 1990 on the counterfeiting charges and he was sentenced to 33 months behind bars for just that while he awaited his murder trial during which time he attempted escape they ended up getting a tip off that he was planning escape they went into his cell and they found blueprints of the prison so he'd clearly been working out some sort of escape route (sighs) So he didn't even come close. But while they were searching his cell, they also found a letter to his son with Donna. (gasps) Oh, my God. He knew the whole time. Unreal. What'd the letter say? It was just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're never going to get a chance to know me. You're not going to get a chance to, you know, we don't have a chance to make things right. I screwed up so badly. Like, I hope you make better choices in life, essentially. Whoa. Even bad choices are better than this guy's choices. This guy has some of the worst choices I've ever seen on our show. Yeah, they're harmful. Very harmful. Bad, bad, bad choices. Well, later on, he also somehow got his hands on some sort of sharp implement and sliced up his wrists and ankles. But he did not even come close to perishing at that point. They they rushed him to the infirmary. And some of the authorities think that it was not necessarily a real suicide attempt, but another escape attempt because he believed it was easier to escape from the prison hospital. But yeah, that didn't that didn't work out for him so great either. So while Costa was up to all of these shenanigans, Deidre Hunt pled guilty to murder and attempted murder. On September 14th, 1990, she was given two death sentences. 
and six life sentences for the various attempts on the life of Lisa Fotopoulos. At 21, she became the youngest woman in the United States on death row. That's so sad. However, in 1998, she was granted a retrial after it was revealed that her court-appointed attorney had snuck a camera crew from Current Affair into the prison saying that they were doing a taped deposition or taped meeting that he needed for legal purposes when really he was sneaking in a tabloid camera crew because they paid him $5,000. Oh my God, that's so unethical. So unethical. So of course the courts were like, yes, you get a new trial because this was the same guy who two months after that event convinced her to plead guilty saying that it would look better to the judge. And the judge still gave her two death sentences and six life sentences. So it turns out his advice was pretty darn bad. Yeah, he should not be. Well, (laughs) yeah, he should not be practicing. I'm not sure if he was disbarred, but I hope he got some sort of official punishment. So she did go back to trial, but the jury said, no, yeah, you are a part of this. They publicly played the video of her killing this guy. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Yeah. However, when she was sentenced, it was downgraded to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which I think is more appropriate in her circumstances. Totally. Still Elwaft. She is 53 years old-ish, I think, around now. And she went into prison at 20 because she went to jail as soon as they apprehended her. So she has spent a significantly longer portion of her life behind bars than she ever did free. And she will forevermore because of a whole combination of things. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of people who have similarly bad upbringings and they don't kill people. In October 1990, Costa was tried for the murders and attempted murders Deidre testified against him, and he, in turn, tried to pin everything on Deidre. The murders, the attempted murders. The only thing he copped to was having an affair with her. So they were like, yeah, but your fingerprints are on this videotape. Your voice is on this videotape. Your fingerprints are all over on these weapons. And he's like, well, the fingerprints are mine because he actually went on the stand in his own defense and was like, Yeah, of course my fingerprints are on those. They're my guns. You know, she must have gotten them from me. And, you know, I gave her the videotape so she could record herself having sex with another girl because she's bisexual, which was true, but that wasn't why he gave her the videotape. And then when she gave it back, I never watched it. I kept it because I thought maybe it was a sexy tape. Well, you know, my wife had just been shot, so I had to hide it so you guys didn't find out the affair. And then they're like, okay, what about your voice that your wife and Dino and everyone who's ever met you testified that that is 100% your voice. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know. It must be just another random Greek guy that sounds exactly like me. Sure. Needless to say that the jury did not buy it. And they found Costa Fotopoulos guilty of the two murders of Kevin Ramsey and Brian Chase, as well as the six attempts on the life of his wife, Lisa. Costa was sentenced to the death penalty. He has since appealed all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court unsuccessfully. 
He remains on death row. But at, I think he's like 63, 64 by now, I would be very surprised if he's ever executed. I think he will just naturally die in prison someday. Yeah, all of his bad juju. So much. He still looks like such a creep, too. I'll put like that on the Instagram. His He looks bad, like evil, evil to the yeah. core. Yeah. yeah. Like you look at a picture and it kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies. He's that type of person. In January of 1991, the state of Florida exhumed Sino's body for an autopsy, but the results were inconclusive. They could not find exactly the toxin that they were looking for. They did not find overwhelming evidence of mercury poisoning, but the medical examiners did say that it was a huge possibility that it was just because it had been over three years that he had been in the ground and that they just could not find it in an amount that would say that he was conclusively murdered. But I mean, I think that's so hard for the family to not know for sure, to just live with that very, very sad possibility. But speaking of the Paspalakis clan, journalist Kathy Kelly from the Daytona News Journal spoke to Lisa in 2014, just about 25 years since the murders that had gripped the region. Lisa is now a happily remarried woman and says about the experience of nearly being killed several times in murder plots by her husband. Well, it was a terrible time, but it is what it is, she said with a smile. Wow. That attitude is incredible. I know. <laughs> yeah, the article went on to say that what people don't know about Lisa is that she was back to work within one week of being shot in the head. Remarkable. She's remarkable. Remarkable. She's like, nothing is going to hold me down. I'm getting back to work. There, He's not taking out the popsalakas. We're doing this damn thing. And so she still runs the family business on the boardwalk in Daytona Beach. She's surrounded by people who adore her and love her. She still remains extremely close to her brother. And he has two sons of his own. And she looks at her nephews like they're her own kids. And she has a very full and complete life knowing that her psychotic ex-husband will die behind bars. Jesus. Wow. We don't usually get somewhat happy endings here, but, you know, I know other people died and it's still very, very sad, but it's just so nice to have somebody that survives and makes such a wonderful, fulfilling life for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And also sometimes I really like a an LWAP because it's nice to know that they're tucked away forever. And we yes. don't have to ever have an addendum to the story. Like they're out there, they're at large, or they're coming to kill us. I know, I hate those. In conclusion, I think we've said this one before, but really, 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 really rethink hiring teenagers as hitmen. They're not good at it. You shouldn't be doing it to them. They don't like it. I just think it's a very poor idea. Hit men and hit women. Yes. all Just no teenagers. Like you can hire them, you know, for your business, for, you know, mowing your lawn. There's a lot of things babysitting, but killing your wife, how about no? Also, as if you didn't fuck up enough other stuff, you really missed out on the opportunity to name the pool hall Hot Shots. Top Shots? Really? Huge, huge missed opportunity there. In fact, Andy, I wrote down hot shots and had to cross it out several times. 
And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one is even almost murdered. Love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.